And we'll read verses 28 through 40 as we continue on with the trial of Jesus. He's uh, been arrested. He's been denied. Uh, he's been brought before the Jewish leaders. And, and John doesn't speak much about uh, Jesus standing before the Jewish leaders. In fact, uh, when he comes to Caiaphas, he comes from Caiaphas's place, uh, John doesn't even really mention uh, anything that happened uh, there. Uh, but he does talk a lot or write a lot about Pontius Pilate and Jesus before Pilate. In fact, he writes more than any of the other Gospels do. Now he, uh, as I've mentioned before, he assumes we know things that have happened before, and, and we'll bring those in uh, when we have to. And this trial of, of Pilate, uh, as I've mentioned, it, John writes much about it, and so we're going to take it in two parts. There is too much to try to get all at one time. And so this is part one, really, of Jesus standing before Pilate. And then it goes into uh, chapter 19, which we will take on, Lord willing, next time. But let's, uh, let's take a look at the beginning of this. It's in John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The word of the Lord, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ stood on trial on our behalf 
Lord. And as we look at the beginning of his trial before Pilate, we pray that your truth will shine forth in our hearts, Lord, that we may be strengthened by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, uh, rules in public speaking, for those of you that have ever had to, to speak in public or, or to write for a large audience, uh, one of the big rules is know your audience. Know who it is you're speaking to and, and don't speak above them and don't speak below them and, and kind of know what it is that they'll respond to. And, of course, uh, in courts, lawyers do this all the time. Uh, if, if there's a jury, they will help pick the jury, of course, but then it's a constant uh, uh, battle of trying to read the jury. What are they thinking? How do I speak to them? How can I convince them of what I'm saying is, is the truth? And if there's not a jury, there's a judge at least. And the judge has a track record usually. Okay, I, I know what he likes and doesn't like, and I can, I can use that to convince him and, and what's going what's gonna to make him act the way I want him to. Know your audience. And when we see the Jewish leaders bringing Jesus to Pilate, one thing we can see as this trial goes on, not only uh, this chapter, but into the next chapter that we'll get to later, is they know their audience. They know Pilate is the one that can put Jesus up on the cross. And they know how to threaten him, even. And that comes a little bit more in the second half of the trial. But we can see the beginnings. They know how to persuade Pilate to get him to do what they want him to. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate. They, they are basically the accusers. They're accusing Jesus of, well, they're going to call him a king because they know that's what Pilate is going to respond to. But we see here as we look at the passage that they lead Jesus from, from the house of Caiaphas. And as I mentioned John didn't really mention uh, hardly anything about Caiaphas, just mentioned him by name. And the Sanhedrin that, was, uh, that met there, we know that from some of the other Gospels that John is assuming we know. And they bring him to the governor's headquarters. Now, your version or translation might say the praetorium. It's the same thing. It's basically the headquarters of the commanding officer of the Roman officer in charge, the Roman military man in, in charge. Um, and, and that's Pilate here in Jerusalem. Now, normally, Pilate is in Caesarea. But when something big is happening in Jerusalem, as he is what they call the governor of Judea, uh, when something big is happening and, and there might be uprisings or you're going to have to uh, do something with your military, he'll go to Jerusalem. And, and there's, we're not sure exactly where he stays. It could be one of two places, either Herod's palace, and that would be on the western wall, and then Herod would have to go somewhere else, and, and Pilate and Herod didn't get along. That may be one of the reasons, because Herod gets kicked out. Um, also, it could be 
the, what they call the Fortress of Antonia. And that's kind of a northwest of the temple. And it's named after, if you like history or Shakespeare, it's, it's named after Mark Antony. Um, it might be the, the Fortress of Antonia, but one of those places. And, and so that's where they have brought Jesus now. And, and they bring him to Pilate. And they, they, uh, they bring him in the early morning. Now, uh, what does he mean by early morning? If, if you took the word that's being used here in its most technical sense, uh, it could be 6 a.m. or maybe even a little before. Uh, we don't necessarily have to take it that literal, but that he does point out it's early morning indicates it's probably a lot closer to 6 a.m. than it is 9 a.m. Uh, so it's, it's pretty early morning, and by the way, the Roman officials, uh, this isn't surprising, they started their work day at 6 a.m. or maybe even a little before, and then they knocked off at about 10 or 11 in the morning, actually, and then slept or did whatever they wanted in the afternoon. But, but they worked really early days. And, and so here we have early in the morning, uh, they bring Jesus, and this isn't anything uh, out of the ordinary. Um, but they themselves did not enter the headquarters. We see that as we continue to read along in verse 28. They didn't want to be defiled. They wanted to eat the Passover. Now, this also might require a little explanation as there's a lot of history that we're going through as, as we take a look at this. There is the Passover meal, but that's also uh, tied in with what's known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted seven days. And there was a meal on each of these seven days. And remember, Judas kind of caught them a little off guard. He betrayed Jesus before they really wanted him to. Uh, Judas found a good time where they could arrest Jesus in kind of a quiet place and not cause a lot of uh, trouble. But it, it was before they really wanted. They wanted to wait till after the feast was done. But... They arrested him, and, and so now when they bring him to Pilate, they still want to have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, depending on what day they're falling on here. And that was a daily thing. But they're defiled all day, so they can't have that evening's meal because then they're not clean until after they bathe that night. Now, there are ways they could have that meal later, but they're Jewish officials, and it wouldn't look good if they did something to make themselves unclean. And so they're making sure they stand outside, and, uh, and Pilate uh, comes outside to them. So now let's talk a little bit about Pilate. Who is he, and what's he up to here? Well, he is the governor of Judea, as I mentioned. He received this appointment in the year 26 AD, so at least four years before uh, this, this event. He held it until 37 A.D. Uh, let me just read uh, from one theologian. He writes this. Historians have come to know him as a morally weak and vacillating man who, like many of the same breed, tried to hide his flaws under shows of stubbornness and brutality. He wasn't well-liked, and he was brutal, and he was stubborn. In fact, in Luke chapter 13, uh, Luke writes that uh, Pilate actually had 
worshipers killed while they were worshiping in the temple. Uh, he was he was brutal and and didn't really care about the Jewish people. And that he comes out really is not all that incredible. He does understand, despite his flaws, he does understand uh, some of the Jewish sensitivities, and and he doesn't want any problems. There's a lot of people in town. All Rome really wants him to do is keep everybody under control. No riots, nothing like that. Just keep everybody under control. And he understands if they want me to try this guy, I'll have to come out to them. And it's no big deal. And so uh, Pilate comes out, but he surprises the Jewish leaders because he asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? And now this is the official beginning of the trial, but the Jewish leaders are most likely surprised. They didn't think there would be a real trial here. Remember, Pilate's already in on this. He had sent his soldiers to arrest Jesus earlier. And John is kind of assuming, you'll notice in the questioning, that, that we're supposed to know that Pilate knows some things already about Jesus. And, and so Pilate, he's already in on this a little bit. He had had his soldiers go and arrest Jesus, and I think the uh, Jewish leaders were just expecting a rubber stamp, basically. Pilate, here he is. Convict him. Let's put him on the cross. Let's, let's be done with this. They were probably stunned by this question, thinking, he's actually going to try him? And we kind of get that from their response in verse 30. Well, if this man were not doing evil, we, we wouldn't have brought him here. Notice there's nothing specific in that. There's no, no specific charge. And Pilate, he knows that this is really between Jesus and, and the Jewish leaders. And, and if they're going to talk in generalities like this, well, he's just a bad guy. Well, notice what he says in verse 31. Well, then take him yourselves. Judge him your own law. I mean, if you're just going to come and bring him here, tell me to put him on the cross because he's a bad guy, what does that mean to me? Do what you want. You can see they're not really prepared. They were thinking he would just go to the cross because they asked him to. But they tell him it's unlawful for us to, to put anyone to death, which is pretty much the truth, not exactly the truth. It, it is certainly unlawful for them to put anyone on a cross. But in all honesty, uh, if they had taken Jesus at that point and took him out into a field and just stoned him to death out in the field and there was no riot or no big uprising or anything like that, Pilate wouldn't have cared. They had stoned people before. They'll stone Stephen later on and there's no real punishment as long as they just kind of do it without causing too much trouble. If a Jewish person wants to kill another Jewish person, what does Pilate care? But they are right. They can't officially put someone to death, and they certainly can't put them on a cross. So for the Jewish officials, here they are with Jesus in, in front of Pilate, and, and they want a few things. They want the official sanction. That it's not only them 
who's saying Jesus is a bad guy and should be killed, but it's also Rome who's saying Jesus is a bad guy and should be killed. They, they want a little muscle behind their claims here. So they want Rome to agree to this. They want Pilate to agree with this. Also, there's this idea, is it really a good idea to kill someone during the feast? You know, that's not going to look good if a Jewish person kills another Jewish person during the feast. Uh, so, so that's going to look really bad. And then theologically, there is this idea that goes back to Deuteronomy, written by Moses. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. They want Jesus cursed. They want this one who's calling himself Messiah and Son of God, which he had done in that earlier meeting with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, this one who's calling himself Messiah, they want him on a cross cursed by God rather than the Son of God. And also what we see, and John points this out, is, is Jesus had said back in chapter 12, uh, Jesus had said this is how he's going to die. It's prophecy. He will be cursed for the sins of the world. And so we can see, and John points this out by, by showing us that, that this is still the hand of God working to redeem his people, which is still the overarching story here. God is redeeming his people. And John, as he writes this narrative, does it uh, very dramatically, very brilliantly, actually. He, he's almost got two stages. If you've ever seen one of those plays where, where you watch and, and you're watching uh, the, from the, you know, the front of the stage, and then there'll be a scene of the play that's like behind the stage, and, and that's almost what John is doing here. We have the, the, the front-facing stage and the rear-facing stage, and, and, and the Jewish people are out here, but now Pilate uh, is, is going to take Jesus inside, backstage, if you will. And, and the drama is enhanced. You can almost hear the Jewish people outside thinking, what are, what's going on in there? And, and here's, they know Jesus. They know that he speaks with power and he speaks truth. And that when people hear him, they believe him. And this has got to be concerning to them when you think of them standing outside. And so when Jesus comes back out and they're all in a frenzy and they've got people all whipped up and shouting, let's crucify him, and all, all lathered and, and foaming at the mouth for blood, this is probably the time they're doing it. Because they're thinking, uh-oh, Jesus is going to persuade Pilate that he's right. So we're going to have to whip everybody up into a frenzy. And, and so they're outside. And now we go to Jesus and Pilate alone and some court officials. Uh, but in verse uh, 33, Pilate entered his headquarters. He called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Now remember what uh, had happened earlier 
in, in the trial that I just, just mentioned, we didn't go through it really, that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and the Son of God. But, but there's this idea, know your audience. Well, if we tell Pilate Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah or the Son of the Jewish God, Pilate's going to say, who cares? That's your deal. But if they say Jesus is trying to be a king, then Pilate's got to listen. And we can obviously see that's what they've told Pilate, that he's trying to be a king. And it's hard to read Pilate's attitude as he asks these questions. You get various uh, ideas on, on how he might be acting. But he asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, now, do you say this of your own accord, or, or did others say this to you uh, about me? You see, Jesus really can't give a yes or no answer here until he understands the question. He's got to define the question, really. Are you asking me, am I a king like you're thinking of a king? Or are you asking me like they think of a king, or as I think of a king? He wants to kind of qualify the question, make sure that they're all on the same page. Because if you're thinking, I want to be a king like you're thinking of a king, then the answer would be no. So he's, he's trying to clarify so that he can answer truthfully. So, so is, is this you, Pilate, or somebody else? And, and Pilate answered, am I a Jew? This one is where he might be a little sarcastic or, or whatever, uh, cynical perhaps. Am I one of them? Uh, this, this is your own nation. And your chief priests, they, they've brought you to me. What, what have you done? I mean, he just asks them outright, what, what have you done, Jesus? He has really no interest in, or firsthand knowledge of Jewish belief. Uh, Pilate doesn't. And just by asking this question, you can tell that he's really not satisfied with the accusations that have made, been made against Jesus, these charges that his accusers have brought, he doesn't seem satisfied. Well, Jesus, what have you done? They're speaking in generalities out there. I, well, really, what, what's going on? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is, is not of this world. So Jesus now is going to clarify. He's going to define his kingdom. And in doing so, basically is showing Pilate, you have nothing to fear from me. Rome has nothing to fear from me because it's nothing about this world. And that I was arrested so easily by the Jewish people, I just gave myself up. You know, Peter aside, who made a very clumsy attempt to fight, and, and that didn't work out so well, but Peter aside, nobody did anything. I just let myself be arrested because it's really not about this. Now, Pilate understands very little. He picked up on the king part of that. He says, so you are a king? You know, we'll just see the confusion in in. Pilate's face, so, so what, you're, you're a king? And then Jesus answers, uh, well, you say I'm a king. Those are your words. 
If, if you want to use those words, go ahead. But, but I'll tell you the purpose I was born. And I'll tell you the purpose I have come into the world. And this is it. To bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Verse 37. King is your word, Pilate. But I'm here to testify to the truth. And this kingdom of mine is a kingdom of truth. Back uh, the night before, he had told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the, the truth, and, and he is disclosing the truth of God's salvation and disclosing the truth of God. He is God. He's disclosing the truth of God's judgment. It's, it's this saving kingship uh, to those who are rightly related to him. Um, that's, that's his kingdom. That's what he's here to do, to bear witness to this, this truth of God and salvation and, and judgment. And Pilate said to him, well, what is truth? And once again, we don't really know Pilate's tone of voice or his attitude. Uh, some say he's being sarcastic or cynical. Uh, I even read one uh, recently who said that uh, Pilate sneered, what is truth? That might be a little strong. He could have been sarcastic. Some say he's being reflective and asking, well, what is truth? I mean, he's having a lot thrown at him, and I kind of take that side a little bit. There's probably some sarcasm and cynicism in there, but almost this idea of he doesn't know well, what is truth. And maybe I take that view because that's a question we hear a lot. What is truth? What is truth? We hear it all the time. And one thing we can get from what Jesus is saying here is that when it comes to God, there is an objective truth. There is one truth about God. It's not subjective. Jesus makes that very clear. There's not a truth about God for you and a truth about God for me. The truth about God has nothing to do with my feelings or what I want to be true. There is an objective truth about God. God is God, and what he has spoken is truth. And we don't mess with that. And Pilate is asking, what is truth? He's somewhat confused. I'm sure he's frustrated. Jesus is answering these questions in a way that he can't figure out. But he does understand this. Jesus is no threat. And so continuing on with verse 38, uh, he comes out and he tells the Jewish people, I find no guilt in him. There's nothing here. And if Pilate had more integrity, if he had more backbone perhaps, this no guilt verdict would have just stood. 
And it could have. It should have, actually. He could have said, I find no guilt here. Jesus, go on your way. Sanhedrin, go home. I'm going to knock off business here and be eaten by 10 o'clock. Let's just go our own ways and be done with this. And that's what should have happened. But for whatever reason, we know the hand of God is working in this. That's our overarching reason. But Pilate decides to say, well, you have this custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. How about this one? Now, there might be a few different reasons Pilate is doing this. Maybe, maybe he's going to help the Jewish people save face. Because they know they want him to officially declare Jesus guilty. So maybe he's thinking, all right, here's what I'll do. I'll declare him guilty, then we'll just release him, and you guys save face. I don't have to do anything about this. We can all go home. Or maybe, maybe he's trying to save his own skin. Thinking, okay, look, if I don't do something, they're going to riot on me. And they do threaten him later. We'll get to that uh, next time. Uh, but look, I'll declare him guilty, then we'll just release him. And then there can be no riot. Or maybe he's doing it just to uh, antagonize them, uh, embarrass them by calling Jesus the, the king of the Jews. You know, here, I'll release this guy, this king of the Jews. You want him or... or Barabbas. Now, he doesn't mention Barabbas. Here's where John uh, is assuming we know some of the other uh, Gospels because uh, he was the one that actually mentioned Barabbas. And, and in verse 40, when John writes, they cried out again, we have to assume they cried out a first time, which is written uh, in the synoptics. But they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, John writes here. All of the Gospels tell us a little bit about Barabbas. That word uh, that gets used for robber does mean robber, but it also means um, a revolutionary leader, uh, a rebellion-type leader. Uh, Mark 15 mentions murder, an insurrectionist, and, and he murdered uh, people. So what we have is a guy who is a real threat to Rome and actually a real threat to the Jewish people because if this guy stirs up enough trouble, Rome's going to come in and wipe out all the Jewish people. And so that was probably playing that Pilate's had a little bit too. Here, I'll, I'll bring this guy who's a real threat. Uh, opposed to this guy, no, no trouble's going to come from him. But remember, they've whipped themselves up and they're all in on getting Jesus down and they'll even take... Barabbas, though he's a threat to everybody. And they asked for Barabbas. One uh, theologian writes this, Thus, at the instigation of the chief priests, who normally had nothing to do with zealots and others interested in armed rebellion, the crowds call for the release of a man who has committed murder in his struggle against Rome while condemning a man falsely accused of being a danger to Rome, Pilate cannot fail to see the irony. What will he do? It's a good cliffhanger at the end of chapter 8.
backed himself into a bit of a corner here. And he can see we have a man who's a real threat and this guy who's not a threat. What? They're all calling for the release of the one who is a threat. What is Pilate going to do? Next time, same bad channel, same bad time. But before we get there, before we get there, I want to pick up on what Pilate's not understanding about the kingdom of this world. Because I think John wants us to focus a little bit on that. And remember, shortly before Jesus was arrested, back in chapter 12, Jesus had said, now is the judgment of the world. Now the will of the ruler, now will the will of this ruler of this world be cast out. Here's the judgment. The ruler of this world will be cast out. And, and that he's speaking of Satan there, who will be cast out. And then you wonder, cast out of where? Because we see evil in the world today. You look at the headlines, and it's very clear there's evil in the world today. Who is this ruler of the world or I should say, where is this ruler of the world being cast out of? Well, John tells us later on what happens when Christ died. And, and he writes this actually in Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. John is writing. Here's what happened when Christ died. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan, whose very name means accuser, is thrown down, cast out, just like Jesus said he would be. Cast out the one who would accuse them day and night before our God. And what we have here is this picture of Jesus standing before his accusers, false accusers as they were, false accusations brought up against him. None of it right, but Jesus stands before them, and he will accept the punishment that these accusers want to put him on a cross, and he'll stand there, and take this from these accusers, and in doing this, he guarantees that we have no accuser before God in heaven. He stands up and faces the accusers. We have none. Romans, or Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God's not going to bring charges against his own people. God is the one justifying his people, redeeming his people. And Jesus has the accuser tossed out. John Piper writes it this way, Neither man nor Satan can make a charge stick. The legal case is closed. Christ is our righteousness. Our accuser is disarmed. 
Oh, how bold and free we should be in this world as we seek to serve Christ and love people. And I like how Piper ties in uh, something that, that uh, is, is clear in this passage, too, that I want to make sure we hit on. That when we look at Jesus' statement that his kingdom is not of this world, we should not misconstrue that as meaning that his kingdom is not active in this world or has nothing to do with this world. His kingdom is victorious over this world. And John expects the power of that kingdom to affect this world. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, John writes a little bit about that. John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And there's power in that victory, even in this world. And there's great joy in that victory because we know we have no accuser who can make a charge stick against us before God because Jesus has come to reveal the truth of God and to reveal the truth of his salvation. That's why he was born. That's why he came into the world. And that's why we can take great joy and join in his great power in living in this world. serve him with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ's standing up against the accusers. We know if we had to stand up and face our accuser, we would never last, Lord. But Christ died for our sins and he threw our accuser out. And now we can stand before you redeemed and forgiven and perfect in your eyes. No accusation can be held against those whose faith is in Christ. We thank you for that truth. And we thank you for revealing that truth in Christ to us. In whose name we pray.